Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Juan Del Nido, author of the brand new book, Taxi vs. Uber, Courts, Markets and Technology in Buenos Aires. This book was published by Stanford University Press in 2021. Dr. Del Nido is a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Social Anthropology at University of Cambridge. Hi, welcome Juan to New Books. Congratulations on your fantastic new book and it's just so wonderful to have you here. Hi, Sneha. Thank you for having me and uh, thank you for the compliment. Yeah. So let's start off this um, interview and this conversation with uh, learning a little bit about you. Tell us a bit about yourself and your academic journey. What drew you to anthropology in particular? Yeah. So it was a bit of a contorted journey because I started off as an economist. My first degree was economics, which I did back uh, in Buenos Aires, which is my hometown. And I did various things for you know jobs and stuff and um it got to the point where i had this curiosity you know these sort of questions about social problems um that economics wasn't really giving me um exciting or relevant answers or at least answers that i found relevant so yeah i discovered anthropology when i was 24 years old and i did my master's um and I started out working with identity and nationalism and stuff. And then from then on, I moved on to a PhD. And, uh, and then anthropology became my sort of intellectual home um, as a way of thinking about problems. Yeah. You know, it's um, I've done a bunch of these interviews with anthropologists, but I've never actually heard a story of an economist becoming an anthropologist. So this is, this is really, <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a bit of a strange journey. Um, I'm also the I'm also the only economist that I know that then changed to anthropology. But um, it was a very productive journey. I'd like to think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if the the book is symptomatic of that journey. I mean, it says a lot about your grasp. I think on both the disciplines. That that's great. Um, so, how did research for this particular book begin? What's the story behind this book? Yes, so um, I was quite eager to do research in uh, in Argentina and in particular in Buenos Aires or in the Argentina that people in Buenos Aires know. Um, and um, I started off working with taxi drivers, which are fascinating, as in many big cities in the world, you know, Jakarta, London, Rio, Johannesburg, Istanbul, New York. There's this sort of iconicity, this this urban excitement or urban charisma about taxi drivers, right? Um, so I set off to study the industrial organization and, you know, the union and how the trade was run and how they made movement happen. And halfway through my fieldwork, Uber arrived, um, which was, from an intellectual perspective, it was a godsend because it was, you know, the conflict began to exist as such, um, right as I was studying the very industry that would come to be disrupted. And uh, and so as the conflict wore on and it was playing out on courts and on streets and social media and traditional media, um, I became less interested in a way, although the book is 
you know, in a way also about them. But I became less interested in Uber itself and the taxis themselves, and more interested in the conflict that was entwining them, right, in the way, in the way Buenos Aires society and a particular segment of that society um, was making sense of what was happening, of, you know, political, cultural, economic, infrastructural problems, right? So I started tracing those threads and they sort of built up to a pattern and that pattern became um, the book as an attempt to figure out how um, a particular way of reasoning, as it were, which I call post-political, developed around the, the conflict. Yeah, and, you know, as an ethnographer myself, that to an ethnographer in what I consider my hometown, I really cherished your thoughtful and candid discussion of your methods and your focus on what it means to do ethnography at home. Um, so could you take us through some of the dilemmas you thought through while doing ethnography in Argentina and like how did your study pan out over time? Um, it was fascinating uh, in terms of methods and in terms of thinking about, you know, research, something that is very close, you know, to me. Um, home in a geographical sense, but also home in an intellectual sense, in a bodily sense, because um, the taxi industry, which is how this began, is in Buenos Aires, like in most places around the world, um, is a very gendered um, uh, space geared towards men, men and or you know, or, or sort of the way um, the, the ways in which they interact with each other, um, their organizations, the union is a very, um, I mean, some of the critics refer to them as very phallocratic, you know, to give a sense of the dimension of how um, marked these spaces are, right? And um, and it was also, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I am from a very middle-class background, and, um, you know, the taxi industry, although they're not, you know, they're not poor or they're not... Um, necessarily quote-unquote working class because many of them lead very comfortable lives um they they there was this tension this class tension between how they saw me um as a sort of posh um you know researcher coming from you know from the world outside of argentina as it were going back to study you know them and um and so that was one of the main um difficulties right because then i had to i had to figure out how to talk about People who were, you know, they were also men, and my 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 ethnographic participation in their spaces was allowed because I was a man, and they recognized me as a man, and I identified as a man and such, um, with the whole sort of um, gendered performance of being a man, right, in a place like Buenos Aires. Um, but then, you know, as our interactions became more complicated during, you know, with Uber's arrival and stuff. Um, a sort of intellectual intellectual cleavage started playing out as well because I started recognizing patterns of thinking um, that I knew from my time um, as an economist, right? And uh, that was also, in a way, home to me. You know, the ways of thinking, um, the ways of reasoning and making sense of things, of calling them same or different, as it were. Um so then, you know, my being in Buenos Aires was transected by all these sort of gendered class and um, and intellectual dimensions that were actually quite complicated, uh, and that I sort of started thinking, okay, how does how does my being here, 
right, as opposed to any other Argentine, what can I contribute um, from this position, right? We all have a position. And I think one of the main things that I found was, as opposed to disavowing it or, or you know, or lamenting one's positionality, I think it was important to see what one can gain from it, right? And put it in a position where one can uh, put oneself in a position um, where you can sort of, you know, what can I tell others, right? What am I well-placed to tell others from these positionalities um, that others maybe would struggle, you know, in the ways that I would struggle to, you know, to, to tell other stories, as it were. Um, but it was a riveting, it was a fascinating experience because um, there, uh, there were a lot of tensions between sameness and difference and forced me to think in, 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 in less obvious ways about what home meant. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also um, really enjoyed uh, you writing about how the drivers would—they knew that you weren't a taxi driver, you know—and like uh, I think that acknowledgement of the difference, even from their end, um, not just about class or gender, but also about I guess one's um, embodied knowledge of the trade. Uh, and the way you write about that, I thought was um, was very interesting as well. Um, so yeah, that that's great. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was pretty awesome because one of my main interlocutors, a fantastic guy, an immensely intelligent man as well. Um, one of the first things he told me was, uh, and I think it is in the book in the beginning. Um, you will know a lot about the taxi industry, yeah, but you will yeah. never be a taxi driver. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's um, exactly was, the, the one yeah, that I was thinking of. Yeah. And it was, it was really interesting because it forced me to think, you know, you know, we share a language, we share a country, we share a disposition towards understanding this conflict in terms that matter to them. Um, but then the question became, how do we make those differences productive? Um, and it was interesting to me to think in terms of... Um, um, of you know, it's there's long discussion already in in you know ethnography and discussions of method of this cognitive complicity, right? Which basically means you know trying to think through your difference um, with the frankness that matters to understanding uh, the problems that the other part has, as it were, uh, in the terms in the terms that matter to them, right? Um, so yes, no, that was a, a, a particularly <laughs> a particularly productive encounter, I would say. Yeah, it was um, ethnographic gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the book, at its core, is examining the the clash or the several clashes between taxis and Uber that followed the launch of Uber in Buenos Aires in 2016. Um, I found it so useful that you mentioned at the outset that the book is not really about taxis or about Ubers, but it is tracing the various arguments that constituted this very clash and what that clash can then tell us about globalist, culturally liberal middle classes in Argentina. And uh, the book obviously does so much more and proposes a theory, um, what you refer to as post-political reasoning, and I want to get into all of that. Um but I was hoping that we could start with you giving us a bit of historical context about the rise of the Argentinian middle class and how you think about the middle class in your own work. So who is the middle class in Argentina and how are they historically situated? Um, yes, so 
Argentina, and particularly as Argentines understand Argentina, um, <clears throat> is a bit of a peculiar country because um, it went from being a colonial backwater of the Spanish Empire, right, at the southernmost tip of um, South America, um, uh, and a fairly com- comparatively irrelevant uh, land, uh, not exp- irrelevant to Europeans, of course. It was populated for millennia uh, by by Native American peoples. Um, but it was only after independence, which in Argentina was you know between 1810 and 1816, depending on which date one takes, um, that the country became sort of reorganized around um, agricultural capitalism, <clears throat> for, for which it was exceptionally um, uh, endowed, as it were, um, with fertile land and, you know, vast lands that were taken from those peoples. And um, as the country inserted itself in those patterns of um, agricultural capitalism, there was this spectacular economic rise. It was, uh, you know, it was a wealthy and prosperous country, uh, politically violent, but economically prosperous uh, towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. And sort of during that time, uh, a national imaginary consolidated um, around a national history of uh, progress, of technical progress, right, of a sort of um, a positivistic view of the world that Argentines had conquered. Argentina was at the time wealthier um, than most European nations, one of the wealthiest countries in the world as we, as people knew it back then. And so, and with that came an explosion of um, immigration, particularly in central Argentina, which is where Buenos Aires is, um, <clears throat> from central and, and southern Europe, but also from the Middle East, um, all the way up to Russia, etc. So all of these immigrants started building up tour uh, middle class um incorporated via a welfare state developed mostly by uh, Perón, known for, you know, it's fairly known in the world, but one of Argentina's most salient political and party leaders um, in the early 20th century. So we're talking about a middle class that um, sort of grew as it, as it sees itself, right, um, on a history of progress, of striving, of, of, of positivistic, with a, with a positivistic view of the world, as it were. And um, as the 20th century unfolded, um, Argentina became, for reasons that are, you know, you know, uh, deserve a much greater exploration that we may have time for. Um, Argentina became a politically more polarized, um, economically more marginal country. Uh, production stalled, became monetarily very uh, uh, unstable, and so. Um, these middle classes started sort of fractioning themselves politically and uh, and economically. Of course, I'm not saying they were always homogenous, um, but the story became quite more complicated because we're talking about a people um, that started struggling with the idea that they belonged in an impoverishing nation as opposed to a poor one or a rich one, right? Um and and this middle class, which still exists, you know, it's a very strong segment of Buenos Aires society in particular today, has this anxiety uh, for that modernity, for that progress, or for whatever they imagine, right, is associated with that modernity and that progress. Um, that is, there's a longing to belong um, to what they see as the world, uh, as as the modern world, um, and. Uh, 
and so it's a very um it was a it's a very subtle sense because this is not a um it's it's not a libertarian middle class but it's a middle class that longs for um and deploys a discourse of personal choice and personal freedom um it's a superficially ecumenic class by which i mean um this is a class that defines itself as tolerant as progressive in the contemporary sense of the term um as politically inclusive and is quite anxious to perform that as well um is very uh, or likes to think of itself as cosmopolitan and and sort of attuned to what's happening in the world so this is a middle class this is the segment of the of the buenos aires middle class uh, that dominated the reasoning about um, the Uber conflict, right? Um, so, and that defined um, to a great extent how the conflict played out um, across all its fronts, right? On social media, at courts, and on, on the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was very, very helpful. Thank you. And I realize that it's actually quite difficult to, to um, squeeze like a very complex um, history into a podcast answer, but I think this this was great. Thank you for that. Um, so the first three chapters delve into, um, as you put it, what the taxi industry and transactions are are like in Buenos Aires. What kinds of bodies and knowledges they are made of, and how they belonged in the common experience before Uber arrived. And the first of these chapters looks at the role of the taxi license and a murder in 2001 um, in making possible taxi driving as a public service. So could you elaborate on this um, and tell us the story of the political drama unfolding around the seemingly benign taxi license? It was a a riveting story, and parts of which I remembered as a citizen of Buenos Aires because I was living there when all of these things happened. But um, so... um, Taxi driving, um, one of the difficulties that I had with the book and that anyone working with taxis will have is that the word taxi is quite universal um, across languages. But it usually, I mean, it it means usually very specific things um, in in different places. In particular, in Buenos Aires, taxis are, um, there's only one kind of taxi. It's a four-wheeled vehicle, uh, yellow on top, black uh, at the bottom. And um, and all licenses, the trade is organized by the state, by the state of the city of Buenos Aires, uh, the government of the city of Buenos Aires, and all licenses in principle um, and legally belong to the state. Now, since the 80s, uh, which is as far as my interlocutors remembered and had been in the trade, right? So since the 80s and up until the late 1990s, it was an immensely informal trade. And informality in in Argentina is takes, tends to take a particular form, which means that the taxis themselves were registered with the state, as was the license, um, but the people driving them were not. This is to say that people who owned taxis um, rented out the car to other people uh, without telling the state that they were doing so in order to avoid um uh, labor charges and union charges and such because of course i should have said before um argentina is a relatively highly unionized country in the mid 20th century sense of unions and um and the taxi and the union of taxi drivers was particularly strong 
Now, towards the end of the 1990s, this was one of the most informal trades uh, in the city. Um, very few taxi drivers were registered as such. Right? Um, and then, so the license existed and was there, but was not doing the work that it was set up to do, which was render legal, economic, and labor relationships intelligible to the state and to passengers. Um, in 2001, uh, amid the general economic disintegration of Argentina, which led to the crisis in that's sort of known around the world in uh, late December 2001. Uh, so we're talking about a, an industry that was losing um, trade because people didn't have any money. Um, two, quote-unquote, fake taxi drivers, that is to say two, two, two drivers who were not registered um, uh, with, you know, with the state as driving taxis, attacked Two different women. Uh, one was uh, also raped. One was two. Both of them were robbed, and one was raped. Um, and so that already put the subject of uh, informality in the taxi industry uh, on the news. We're talking about two thousand and one. And in November, uh, the husband of a famous Argentine celebrity was murdered in the back of a taxi um, in the same form of informality. Uh, uh, to take just to rob him, yeah. it was then determined that the, the the robbery had been at random. It just happened to be the husband of someone famous, and because he was someone so famous. Um, the case made national headlines, and at the time, the union uh, leader uh, Omar Viviani, an immensely uh, astute, charismatic leader, um, grabbed this momentum right, and so he came out and said, "Well." It's 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 not acceptable that us taxi drivers are being blamed um, for or, or uniquely solely blamed for these crimes. There has to be a responsibility shared by those who drive the taxi and those who own the taxi. And incidentally, the union had presented a a, a project of law uh, requiring precisely you know the end of informality in the taxi industry, and so. During that summer, January, February 2002, which is, of course, summer in Argentina, um, the entire trade was reinvented by formalizing all of these uh, labor relations. And somehow we ended up with one of the most formalized trades in what remains, in many ways, an informal um, city. And um, and so this is how, because of that murder and... um, and because of you know the economic moment uh, of the nation, because people were afraid of taking taxes, but also they didn't even have any money to take taxes, um, this union leader managed to craft uh, a political economy for his trade, ironically by making the license do what it always was supposed to do, which was link bodies to each other and to the state and render transport legible uh, to the eyes of uh, of the public and of the state. And that's how the taxi industry came to be, as we know it today in Buenos Aires. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, following, I guess, a thread of perhaps unintended consequences, um, the second chapter demonstrates so lucidly and provocatively how a road accident in 2013 enabled the rendering of the taxi driver body as a social problem. And you title this chapter an intractable question, which says a lot about the point that you're trying to make in the chapter about how a variety of social actors 
at trying to answer a question or solve a problem that has no real answer or solution. Um, so what does tailing the various argumentations following this road accident in 2013 tell us about the politics of knowledge production in Buenos Aires? Um, I think it was it was it was a particularly apt example, um, as you say, to think about exactly as you put it about the politics of of knowledge. Um, so in 2013. Uh, a young woman was out on the streets. She was going to cash a check and, um, at, in central Buenos Aires, in one of the main avenues. And um, a rogue taxi um, was suddenly out of control, um, uh, smashed, crashed several vehicles on its way in one of, down one of the main avenues in Buenos Aires and hurt several pedestrians and killed this woman. She was uh, in her early 20s. Leonela Noble was her name. And so this was, you know, it was quite dramatic because it was all very, uh, it was all cinematic, the entire accident. But also very quickly, when when it came to figuring out, you know, whether it was homicide, manslaughter, and how to understand the conditions or the circumstances in which um, Leonela Noble was killed, uh, in order to figure out that, they had to figure out, of course, what had happened to the driver. Now, the driver was found in the car um, with an unwrapped suite clenched tight in his fist. Uh, then it came out that he was hypoglycemic. Um, sorry, he was um, diabetic, which he knew at the moment of, you know, getting a taxi driving license, but he never told um, authorities. So then this triggered this fantastic um, legal case, trying to figure out, you know, was he was a problem that he knew and that he lied? Was a problem that he was diabetic, but he wasn't caring for it properly? What was the role of public institutions, the state, um, the taxi union, and other you know taxi owners' chambers in knowing these bodies and what's happening with them? And it's very difficult because you know we're talking about thirty-six thousand taxis uh, driving around Buenos Aires at any given moment. Um, so we're talking about 36,000 drivers in motion on their own in a car. Yeah. So then the question became, it was a huge uh, PR problem even, right? Because, you know, people were very angry that how, you know, how, how was this allowed to happen? But it was also, what was interesting about the accident and the circumstances of the accident is that it forced the question, presented the union and the government, the question of, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again, right? Of course, in order to know that someone who's alone driving in a car doesn't have an accident, you know, you, it's, a, it's a very complicated question to ask because it amounts to asking, how do we know how bodies will behave on their own? Which is tantamount to saying, how do we know that which we cannot know, right? So, so the entire chapter, in a way, sort of traces all the the problematization, as it were, in the Foucauldian sense of the word, that is, the rendering visible um, of these bodies to particularize, and in particular terms, in other ways, to know them in specific ways, right, through um, visual acuity tests, through audiometries, through psychological examinations, um, through classes where they get to discuss road safety and all of these matters, in order to instill in them um, a sense of you know, a sense of sort of an ethics of driving, but also in order to read these bodies um, in specific ways. Can they tell red from green? Do they understand how, you know, high blood pressure affects them? Can they make a link between, you know, poor uh, nutrition and 
hypertension, for example, right? And um, what, was, what was very interesting about um, about you know what, what followed the accident was, as you say, the emergent politics of knowledge. Whereas as these bodies came to be known in a certain way, of course, seeing whether someone can tell red from green does not necessarily mean that that person is never going to you know cross a red light, right? Does not necessarily mean that they will never have an accident. Um, but it's at least a way of way of approximating an answer, you know, to the question of how do we know? That's the intractable question. How do we know that which we cannot know, right? Um, but what matters to me, what is crucial to me that um, we all get from, from, from this particular chapter is that this politics of knowledge is a public problem, right? The taxi industry, this is a, a public in the sense that it concerns everyone that moves in the city, right? It's not a problem about personal experiences, although it can be rendered as such, but it's fundamentally about how we all know each other and who has this knowledge and who has the right and why to pronounce themselves, to approximate an answer, right, to that question, to that intractable question. Um, Why should it matter that um, an ophthalmologist pronounces herself with respect to a body, right? A particular taxi driver's body. Why should it matter that a road technician uh, should prepare exams to f- make sure that future taxi drivers understand the codes of the road, right? Um, so, so what I th- what I thought was really interesting about the taxi industry, uh, especially in light of the conflict that would then unfold with Uber and and, and a teeming discourse of public and private, was that these ways of knowing are public, are hierarchical. And in a way, they are political because they prioritize answers, right? It matters that it is an ophthalmologist and not me as a, an ethnographer or as a regular person that pronounces herself over whether someone can see colors or not, right? It matters It matters that is, um, uh, I don't know, it matters that is a, a road technician that makes sure that people understand these things, people understand these things, sorry, um, but it matters because you know these um, these professions are embedded in in a public problem of how we know each other, right? In the way in which we veto each other's knowledge, in the way in which we in the way in which we sanction each other's knowledge, in the way in which the judge looking at a case has to decide what is known about this person and why do we know what we do or, or not? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, in the fourth chapter, you address Uber's arrival on this fractious transportation landscape in Buenos Aires. Um, In this chapter, you show how the middle class mobilized a narrative that the people want Uber. And you write that this discursive strategy is best understood through what you term um, gladiatorial truths. Um, so how are you conceptualizing this fascinating phrase and what do these truths do to public discourse in Buenos Aires? Um, could you give us a few examples perhaps? Yes. So, so by, by the point, you know, by that point in the book, Uber has already arrived, right? Um, obviously, as is, as is implied in the question. And um, what was um, riveting to me to see was that somehow, you know, right after Uber arrived, the taxi industry initiated legal action against it um, at court, you know, another public way of deciding, you know, who belongs or not in the order of things of Buenos Aires, as it were. And But simultaneously, 
amongst that middle class that we spoke of earlier, that, you know, cosmopolitan, anxious for modernity, uh, middle class, developed, you know, quite strongly this notion that the people wanted Uber and that therefore they should have it, right? Because they wanted it, right? And um, what struck me there was the immense traction that in late capitalism around the world, um, an argument based on what the people want has, right? And um, and that's where I started thinking, how is this working? And uh, it reminded me a lot of, uh, of, you know, of those stories about gladiators when they're fighting. And then, you know, at the end of the fight, um, Caesar has to, you know, either, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, depending on what the people say. Um, and that's the end of it, right? So that's where I developed this notion of the gladiatorial truth, which is, in a nutshell, is a truth claim, right? A claim to the stakes um, based on the moral legitimacy of what the people want, quote unquote, right? Because uh, I think what's, what's really interesting to capture here is that whenever this notion of the people want this or that, or the people think that, or the people feel that as a collective, whenever that's evoked, which is happening daily, right? Anytime you open the news, uh, you see it everywhere. Um, what's interesting to me is there's this, this notion sort of evokes a transfer, sort of a, a translocation of a problem, that a problem that was political, right? Um, how does Uber belong in the order of things of Buenos Aires in this case? Uh, it, it transforms it into a moral problem. Because in this day and age, the people have come to be um, the site of, of what feels like this mystical um, moral legitimacy that it's increasingly difficult to argue against, right? Regardless of the context, um, it's a it's it's a it's a rhetorical drive that trumps um, parties, that trumps institutions, that trumps experts of any kind, regardless of how we feel about the particular claim that's being put forward, right? Um, it's um, it evokes a sort of a raw. Um, a raw legitimacy based on consumers' choice, based on, you know, the people know what they want and know what is right for them, which is a very, you know, which one of the core tenets of neoclassical economics, uh, nowadays known mostly as neoliberalism, right? Um, so, and I found it fascinating and I found it, I found I was particularly struck and a little concerned by how difficult it is to effectively argue against it, right? Because, you know, amongst academics in our seminars, in our books, we can all say, you know, this should not be, you know, this is a more complex issue. This should be dealt with carefully. Or, you know, there are many layers that one can't simply understand like that. But once in public discourse, right, once someone evokes what the people want or what the people feel, whether through polls or, in my case, through the sheer excitement on the streets, it becomes quite difficult to effectively argue against it, right? It becomes difficult to repoliticize the problem, right? So the main argument here, uh, and I think my main concern with gladiatorial truths, is that they turn political problems based on, you know, on, on our human uh, capacity to disagree, right? They turn them into moral problems where disagreement is not so simple mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how Uber was uh, pitching itself as it launched and how that may have fueled or shaped middle-class responses to its arrival? Yeah, so um, in many ways, the company acted as it acted in many other parts of the world. Um, it launched its services and you know left the legal conversation for later. Um, but, but one of the main messages that they... Uh, played on in their in their Buenos Aires uh, launch was uh, you know the the whole the empowerment as they do in other places the drive when you want get a taxi get a car when you want it's about freedom of choice um, and it's about you know your ability to be entrepreneurial which was a discourse that was of course leveraged in other parts of the world they also however which was a very compelling argument in Buenos Aires they launched this sustained um, campaign uh, particularly through mass media, but also through um, social media, you know, insisting on you know Uber works everywhere in the world. Uber is now working in four hundred cities around the world. It's connecting people all over, and in a place like Buenos Aires, um, you know, we're talking about the wealthy capital of a peripheral country. That argument that something works, you know, everywhere else in the world, even if it's not strictly, you know, true, because Uber wasn't in every single country, but of course. It was working in many places. But an argument that takes that shape is immensely persuasive when received by people who are anxious to belong to that modernity. And it's persuasive in and of itself, regardless of its truth value, right? So that was one of the most interesting drivers. And another one that was quite particular to Buenos Aires is that, to my knowledge, um, the Buenos Aires version of the Uber conflict, as opposed to the Uber conflicts that happened elsewhere, um, took a particular form because the judge said, the judge told the company um, uh, they should interrupt its business and that Uber transactions should be blocked, and the company refused to cooperate. Um, so that turned what was, you know, a complex problem of, you know, what kinds of relations are we seeing here into something that came quite close to um, contempt of court in a way. Uh, and because so as the court started saying, you know, we have problems, you know, we have to determine what Uber is and how it's affecting the order of things. Uber launched a social media campaign um, saying that they would defend people's rights to choose with a hashtag and everything. Hashtag right to choose. Right. Um, so we're talking again, that right to choose um, is a moral right. It's not necessarily a political right. Um, you know, the right to choose is not necessarily spelled out in constitutions, it's, you know, it's part and parcel of how we inhabit um, late capitalism, but it's much more raw as well. Um, and and it, has a, it has an immense traction, and that was particularly salient um, in, the case of, uh, in the case of Buenos Aires uh, and, and its local uh, version of, of the conflict, because again, it made it harder to argue against it. It made it harder to to think of disagreement, I insist, beyond academic seminars, right? In the actual life of the conflict, uh, it became harder to engage people who were so um, frustrated with not being able to access a service that was allegedly uh, working in 400 cities of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the sixth chapter, you unpack the middle-class logics further and um, you focus on this phrase, 
um, ordered, orderly order. And this framing you point out rests on a grammar of efficiency, supply and demand that is set to overhaul and revolutionize mobility and movement within Buenos Aires. You posit that uh, Uber works, in fact, as a phantasmagoria for the middle class publics. And I would love for you to say a little bit about how Uber works as a phantasmagoria and um, what does this do to the notion of inclusivity in and of transportation? So I took the, I was, when I was trying to figure out how to understand the way in which these middle classes were understanding Uber rights, um, one of the things that struck me was that Uber was producing for them because, of course, before Uber arrived, there were no other such platforms in Buenos Aires. There were only taxis. So, of course, Uber brought to the city a new way of sorting out movement and of imagining what movement is made of, in a way. <clears throat> Not in an exotic or, you know, or a utopian way. In, you know, in the concreteness of, you know, a technological innovation that the city didn't have until then. And... Uh, what really struck me is that when I was trying to engage my interlocutors from the middle class that were using Uber, downloading Uber, driving for Uber, um, people quite eagerly took on the language of demand, supply, price multipliers. Um, people were discussing what the algorithm did, not necessarily because they knew the algorithm itself, because as is well known, Uber's algorithms are quite secretive, um, but because they were evoking this, this, this efficiency implicit in the notion of algorithm at the level of common discourse, right? So then, you know, I had all my interlocutors talking about, well, you know, supply, demand, and such. And then I started thinking about these people are understanding their relations, uh, not as relations, not as social relations, this is a classical Marxist argument, not as relations between people, but as relations between things, right? Between abstractions between supply and demand that they're matching each other between uh, price surges between market clearance and these things and uh, it reminded me of the phantasmagoria so the phantasmagoria was a device um a pretty amazing device actually um developed a couple of hundred years ago as a similar to the magic shows but it was what was particular about the phantasmagoria was that Spectators or the audience never saw uh, the source of light. It was a dark room, and all they could see were forms, ghosts, shapes of light flickering around them and moving in quick succession without them having a way to actually sort of know what they were made of uh, or what was behind those shapes. That's where Marx took the notion of, um, you know, saying this is a re- this is a phantasmagorical relation, not between people but between things. And um, and that's when I started thinking about the problem with the phantasmagoria in my case is not necessarily that these relationships were not real or were contrived or were cynical or were, you know, whatever we may say about how Uber organizes its trade. But what's interesting is that these relations work through what I would call propositions. That is to say, they present users, drivers or passengers with prices, um, with rides, with journeys, with moments of time um, that are actually that can manage that can manage a language of efficiency without being verifiable, right? Because 
when you're interacting with the platform, you know, you can't really know if that's an optimal journey or if that's a if that is a quote unquote market price. You either take the price or you don't take the price, right? You ride or you wait or you take something else, right? So it creates a sort of order uh, made of all these phantoms um, that actually it stops mattering whether these phantoms are actually quote unquote real or if they're fake. But st- what starts mattering is that people start thinking in the terms of the phantasmagoria. In other ways, one of the most um, salient examples <clears throat> where the cars that Uber shows on its screen, you know, when you're a passenger and it shows cars around you. And so this fieldwork was conducted in 2016 and already Alex Rosenblatt, uh, one of the main researchers or earliest researchers of uh, platforms, and in particular Uber, had argued that many of these cars were not real. They were not actually cars that were out there, but they were, you know, ghost cars. And so I asked one of my interlocutors, are these cars real? Um, but the problem is that people don't care if they're real, right? Because my, when my interlocutor told me, well, you know, that's by the way, whether it's real or not, the point is that the platform will find the car. So that ghost, in a way, is standing there for something else that may or may not be there. But it's generating, it's allowing people to think in terms of that ride, in terms of scar, um, in terms of scarcity, in terms of you know, surplus demand and such. And uh, and what was interesting about that phantasmagoria is that, in principle, it can include anyone, you know. Because there's no reason why, you know, the, the barriers of entry, you know, back to the point of um, inclusivity, it can include anyone as a driver. It can include anyone as a, or virtually anyone as a passenger. Um, and every single experience counts, right? So as is, as is known, Uber has, a, you know, the, the five stars to rate drivers. But these are used by, you know, private users, uh, who then rank their or rate um, their experience? I should clarify that back at the time um, there was not there was no way for um, for drivers to rate passengers. At that time, it was unilateral. And uh, and then, of course, you know, there's this sense of again this sense of empowerment, this sense of um, democracy, because now everyone can pronounce themselves on you know the quality of the ride or how good the ride was or how bad it was or whether there were problems with it or on virtually anything, right? And that's when I started thinking about, you know, thinking in terms of, as we said earlier, the politics of knowledge when it came to taxis, you know, there were actual questions. Can this person tell red from green? Can this person hear? Has this person had a heart attack? Has this person got any of these diseases that would make them more likely to have an accident, right? As we said earlier, these were public politics of knowledge, right? That were playing on a public sphere of, you know, discourses of, you know, medical knowledge, of um, physiological knowledge, and so on. Whereas here, you know, these five stars are so inclusive because you can rate on a basis of absolutely anything that... But they're both. There was. They're also. They're very inclusive, but they're also private. In other words, I rate with respect to how I felt, and that's the only thing that matters. But because nothing else can matter, my you know, say I give four stars because the driver uh, was too chatty. Then you know, later on that day, you give that driver four stars because he was a reckless driver. Then later on that same day, someone gives four stars because um, he had terrible music selection. Right. These are all fundamentally different things, 
they're not even problems. I mean, being a reckless driver is possibly illegal. Having bad music is irritating. You know, these are not things that are remotely comparable. Yet they get, you know, in, in that sort of empowering inclusivity or inclusiveness, they get aggregated arithmetically to produce a rating that cannot mean anything epistemologically is fundamentally empty, but that carries with it the illusion of infinite inclusivity, um, where knowledge cannot be ranked right. This is private knowledge, in a way, or private experiences that have colonized a public problem. In other words, we can disagree whether one needs to know if a driver can tell red from green. You know, there's something to disagree with, at the level of the taxi, right? Whereas now with all these ratings, there's nothing to disagree with because they can't actually mean anything. Right, right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I was just thinking about my the way, I guess, uh, I have seen people rate drivers or I myself have rate, rated drivers. And uh, yeah, it's, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so in the seventh chapter, you write about how while the taxi industry initiated legal action against Uber, Uber kept um, going with discounts and used, as you just also mentioned, the concept of freedom of choice to continue its operations. Um, but you do delve into how the legal system sought to regulate Uber. So what were the sorts of um, legal regulations that were attempted and what were the predominant consequences of legal action? So um, it was a tricky problem from the outset because Uber arrived um, when it decided it was a good time to arrive. And um, and the justice found out that they had not sought any particular permit. They had not sought a permit to trade uh, to trade period. They had not sought permission to trade as providers of transportation. And so the arguments began um, in a way similar to those debates that were had at the time um, elsewhere in the world about the nature of these relationships. <clears throat> that is to say, is this an innovation, therefore something that is beyond the remit of laws that exist and that are based on previous cases? Or is this in fact simply a reworking of things that we already know and this should be um, held to the same standards as other forms of transportation. Um, However, part of the difficulty was, the difficulty that justice had was um, because they struggled technically to pin Uber down, right? Um, The sort of amongst that segment of the middle class started developing the sense that somehow Uber was beyond um, jurisdictions, uh, which was in a way a corollary of Uber's own claims. But unfortunately, for a couple of things that I will mention right now, um, the way things played out made it, you know, lent that argument um, uh, a legitimacy that maybe it didn't deserve. Because uh, one of the first attempts that the justice, you know, we need to remember we're talking about, you know, street fights, uh, raids on law offices, raids on the, uh, the CEO's, um, Uber CEO's house in downtown Buenos Aires. And as all of these things are happening, the justice is figuring out, right, where are Uber offices, where are Uber transactions, who is taking part in them. And um, when the company refused to shut down its services and explain itself, 
you know, the justice took on more sort of uh, a more, I don't want to say aggressive, a more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> uh, more enthusiastic, decisive or enthusiastic, <laughs> more decisive stance, yes. And one of the first things that justice attempted was to block Uber transactions. And so they had technicians that told them, well, you know, they happen, you know, uh, through internet in this way and this other way. And so the justice said, well, you know, we should block the transactions for the entire city of Buenos Aires. And now the problem was that Buenos Aires, there's a few cities in the world with a similar makeup. Um, the most famous one is Washington, D.C., um, which is integrated to Virginia and Maryland. Um, and, you know, the separation is mostly in many ways ceremonial. It's just, you know, a line on a map. In the case of Buenos Aires, Although the city of Buenos Aires is its own jurisdiction, the border between the city and the province, which is the next jurisdiction, is simply a highway uh, and the river at the bottom. Uh, But the internet infrastructure serving the entire area is completely integrated. In other words, to keep the story short, it was politically... It was. It made perfect sense that this, the judge from the city of Buenos Aires would ban or carry out uh, its authority within the strict territory of the city of Buenos Aires. Technically, however, in the in the literal technical terms, this was impractical. It was just not possible to shut down Uber for one side of an avenue and keep it going for the other side. And um, this was the main, the first big difficulty that justice had, because it, it, on the one hand, it lent credence to Uber's argument that it was beyond the law. And on the other hand, it made the justice look recalcitrant, provincial, um, and as if they had misunderstood what was at stake. Um, and then again, you know, the next attempt was to block transactions at the level of credit cards. And that ban to a degree succeeded, but then credit card companies couldn't tell necessarily where the transaction was coming from, from within the city or from beyond the border. Because, of course, Uber's platform serves uh, the entire metropolitan area, which spills over um, the city borders. Uh, They also couldn't tell... um, they also couldn't tell whether um, the transaction was even happening in 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 uh, sorry whether the transaction was ha- was happening uh, was coming from Buenos Aires or from um, say Uruguay, which is across the river. And of course, you know there is a way of knowing, but the companies have no incentive. To, uh, but Uber has no incentive to tell. And finally, the companies found it easier some of the companies to just pay the credit card companies to just pay whatever sanction uh, the justice would give them for not complying, rather than enacting costly um, and technically contorted bans. And so this rhetoric of being beyond the law gained more and more traction and made it harder to politicize the company's presence because it kept, in a way, quote-unquote, winning the popular argument by being so hard to get rid of it, right? So... From the justice perspective, it was always, you know, a legal, a legal and political problem. There was no, uh, there was no intrinsic difficulty at a political level. However, the technical difficulties in effectively stopping Uber transactions made it very hard for for um, for, for for one to challenge 
the notion that Uber was beyond the things that it was effectively superseding. Yeah, um, thank you. I mean, that I think was very comprehensive. And uh, really, I think the book is such a such a fantastic example of like pulling together different, I guess, perspectives on the same, you know, the, the clash, but like really each chapter kind of drawing or pulling at a different thread. Um, and, and I think that is the, that's what I loved about the book. And I'm very deeply inspired for my own book to um, really try and bring out all these different sides to the story as effectively as you as you did um but you know i've I've taken up a lot of your time already and this has been such a great conversation and i've like relived the book as you've been speaking but i would not want to let you go without asking you what you're working on right now and what can we hope to read by you in the nearish future um, right now, I'm working on um, behavioral economists. Um, in other words, um, I mean, this may be already known by the audiences, but um, is this branch of um, economics that's combining psychological insights, sociological insights, uh, neurosciences and other sort of sciences to try to figure out how people actually um, act in particular contexts. And... Um, <clears throat> This is being used in governmental levels, particularly in the UK, and particularly during the last two years, so during the pandemic years, to try to nudge people to take certain decisions um, to the extent that these um, uh, these people are known as the nudge unit. So at the moment, I'm working on, again, always with a with with a, you know with a foot on the economic side of things, trying to um, trying to understand how this version of economics is is shaping public policy and shaping how we understand uh, relationships between citizens and the state, relationships between citizens and companies, between companies and the state, and so on and so forth. Very very interesting. Um, yeah, that sounds like a wonderful uh, new project. Well. Thank you, Juan, for uh, taking time out to chat with me today. I really look forward to reading more of your work and more of this newer work. And congratulations again on this fantastic book. Um, I really wish you all the luck with with it. And I'm sure it will be immensely helpful um, for people who do pick it up and read it. Um, so, yeah. Yes, thank you, Sneha. Thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss it. I mean, it's been—it was a fun project. It was a scary project, and uh, and I thank you for taking the time to read it. And I hope, as you say, I hope it helps uh, bring ideas to others. Yeah, thank you.